0: The Moonstone Part Thirty Six This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins Read by Joel Portinger. The Discovery of the Truth Third Narrative. Chapter five having told me the name of mr candy's assistant Bettridge appeared to think that we had wasted enough of our time on an insignificant subject he resumed the perusal of rosanna spearman's letter on my side i sat at the window waiting until he had done little by little the impression produced on me by ezra jennings it seemed perfectly unaccountable in such a situation as mine that any human being should have produced such an impression on me at all Faded from my mind. My thoughts flowed back into their former channel. Once more I forced myself to look my own incredible position resolutely in the face. Once more I reviewed in my own mind the course which I had at last summoned composure enough to plan out for the future. To go back to London that day, to put the whole case before Mr. Bruff, and, last and most important, to obtain no matter by what means or at what sacrifice, a personal interview with Rachel. This was my plan of action, so far as I was capable of forming it at the time. There was more than an hour still to spare before the train started, and there was the bare chance that Betridge might discover something in the unread portion of Rosanna Spearman's letter, which it might be useful for me to know before I left the house in which the diamond had been lost. For that chance I was now waiting." THE LETTER ENDED IN THESE TERMS. "'You have no need to be angry, Mr. Franklin, "'even if I did feel some little triumph at knowing "'that I held all your prospects in life in my own hands. "'Anxieties and fears soon came back to me. "'With the view Sergeant Cuff took of the loss of the diamond, "'he would be sure to end in examining our linen and our dresses. "'There was no place in my room, there was no place in the house, "'which I could feel satisfied would be safe from him.' how to hide the nightgowns so that not even the sergeant could find it, and how to do that without losing one moment of precious time. These were not easy questions to answer. My uncertainties ended in my taking a way that might make you laugh. I undressed and put the nightgown on me. You had worn it, and I had another little moment of pleasure in wearing it after you. The next news that reached us in the servants' hall showed that I had not made sure of the nightgown a moment too soon. Sergeant Cuff wanted to see the washing-book. I found it and took it to him in my lady's sitting-room. The sergeant and I had come across each other more than once in former days. I was certain he would know me again, and I was not certain of what he might do when he found me employed as a servant in a house in which a valuable jewel had been lost.' In this suspense, I felt it would be a relief to me to get the meeting between us over, and to know the worst of it at once. He looked at me as if I was a stranger when I handed him the washing book, and he was very specially polite in thanking me for bringing it. I thought those were both bad signs. There was no knowing what he might say of me behind my back. There was no knowing how soon I might not find myself taken in custody or on suspicion and searched. It was then time for your return from seeing Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite off by the railway, and I went to your favourite walk in the shrubbery to try for another chance of speaking to you, the last chance, for all I knew, to the contrary, that I might have. You never appeared, and, what was worse still, Mr. Betridge and Sergeant Cuff passed by the place where I was hiding, and Sergeant Cuff saw me. I had no choice after that but to return to my proper place and my proper work before more disasters happened to me. Just as I was going to step across the path, you came back from the railway. You were making straight for the shrubbery, and when you saw me— I am certain, sir, you saw me. You turned away as if I had got the plague and went into the house. Note by Franklin Blake. The writer is entirely mistaken, poor creature. I never noticed her. My intention was certainly to have taken a turn in the shrubbery, but, remembering at the same moment that my aunt might wish to see me, after my return from the railway, I altered my mind and went into the house. End of note. I made the best of my way indoors again, returning by the servants' entrance. There was nobody in the laundry-room at that time, and I sat down there alone. I have told you already of the thoughts— which the shivering sand put into my head. Those thoughts came back to me now. I wondered in myself which it would be the hardest to do if things went on in this way, to bear Mr. Franklin Blake's indifference to me or to jump into the quicksand and end it forever in that way. It's useless to ask me to account for my own conduct at this time. I try. I can't understand it myself. Why didn't I stop you when you avoided me in that cruel manner? "'Why didn't I call out, "'Mr. Franklin, I have got something to say to you. "'It concerns yourself, and you must and shall hear it.' "'You were at my mercy. "'I had got the whip-hand of you, as they say, "'and better than that I had the means, "'if I could only make you trust me, "'of being useful to you in the future. "'Of course, I never supposed that you, a gentleman, "'had stolen the diamond for mere pleasure of stealing it. "'No, Penelope had heard Miss Rachel,' and I had heard Mr. Bettridge talk about your extravagance and your debts. It was plain enough to me that you had taken the diamond to sell it, or pledge it, and so to get the money of which you stood in need. Well, I could have told you of a man in London who would have advanced a good large sum on the jewel, and who would have asked no awkward questions about it either. Why didn't I speak to you? Why didn't I speak to you?' I wonder whether the risks and difficulties of keeping the nightgown were as much as I could manage, without having other risks and difficulties added to them. This might have been the case with some women, but how could it be the case with me? In the days when I was a thief I had run fifty times greater risks, and found my way out of difficulties to which this difficulty was mere child's play. I had been apprenticed, as you might say, to frauds and deceptions some of them on such a grand scale, and managed so cleverly that they became famous and appeared in the newspapers. Was such a little thing as the keeping of the nightgown likely to weigh on my spirits, and to set my heart sinking within me at the time when I ought to have spoken to you? What nonsense to ask the question! The thing couldn't be. Where is the use of my dwelling in this way on my own folly? The plain truth is plain enough, surely?' behind your back I loved you with all my heart and soul. Before your face, there's no denying it, I was frightened of you, frightened of making you angry with me, frightened of what you might say to me, though you had taken the diamond, if I presumed to tell you that I had found it out. I had gone as near to it as I dared when I spoke to you in the library. You had not turned your back on me then, You had not started away from me as if i had got the plague i tried to provoke myself into feeling angry with you and to rouse up my courage in that way no i couldn't feel anything but the misery and the mortification of it you're a plain girl you've got a crooked shoulder you're only a housemaid what do you mean by attempting to speak to me you never uttered a word of that mr franklin but you said it all to me nevertheless Is such madness as this to be accounted for? No, there is nothing to be done but to confess it and let it be. I ask your pardon once more for this wandering of my pen. There is no fear of its happening again. I am close at the end now. The first person who disturbed me by coming into the empty room was Penelope. She had found out my secret long since, and she had done her best to bring me to my senses, and done it kindly, too. Ah!— "'She said, "'I know why you're sitting here and fretting all by yourself. "'The best thing that can happen, for your advantage, Rosanna, "'will be for Mr. Franklin's visit here to come to an end. "'It's my belief that it won't be long now before he leaves the house.' "'In all my thoughts of you, I had never thought of your going away. "'I couldn't speak to Penelope. "'I could only look at her.' "'I've just left Miss Rachel,' Penelope went on, and a hard matter I have had of it to put up with her temper. She says the house is unbearable to her with a police in it, and she's determined to speak to my lady this evening and to go to her aunt Abel White tomorrow. If she does that, Mister Franklin will be the next to find a reason to going away. You may depend on it. I recovered the use of my tongue at that. Do you mean to say Mister Franklin will go with her? I asked only too gladly, if she would let him. But she won't. He has been made to feel her temper. He is in her black books, too. And that, after having done all he can to help her, poor fellow. No, no. If they don't make it up before tomorrow, you will see Miss Rachel go one way and Mr. Franklin another. Where he may betake himself to, I can't say. But he will never stay here, Rosanna, after Miss Rachel has left us. I managed to master the despair I felt at the prospect of your going away. To own the truth, I saw a little glimpse of hope for myself if there really was a serious disagreement between Miss Rachel and you. "'Do you know,' I asked, "'what is the quarrel between them?' "'It's all on Miss Rachel's side,' Penelope said, "'and for anything I know to the contrary, it's all Miss Rachel's temper and nothing else.' I am loath to distress you, Rosanna, but don't run away with the notion that Mr Franklin is ever likely to quarrel with her. He is a great deal too fond of her for that. She had o- only just spoken those cruel words when there came a call to us from Mr Bettridge. All the indoor servants were to assemble in the hall, and then we were to go in one by one and be questioned in Mr Bettridge's room by Mr Sergeant C- "'and then we were to go in one by one "'and be questioned in Mr. Betridge's room "'by Sergeant Cuff. "'It came to my turn to go in "'after her ladyship's maid and the upper housemaid "'had been questioned first. Sergeant Cuff's inquiries, "'though he wrapped them up very cunningly, "'soon showed me that those two women, "'the bitterest enemies I had in the house, "'had made their discoveries outside my door "'on the Thursday afternoon "'and again on the Thursday night.' They had told the sergeant enough to open his eyes to some part of the truth. He rightly believed me to have made a new nightgown secretly, but he wrongly believed the paint-stained nightgown to be mine. I felt satisfied of another thing, from what he said, which it puzzled me to understand. He suspected me, of course, of being concerned in the disappearance of the diamond, but at the same time he let me see, purposely as I thought—' That he did not consider me as the person chiefly answerable for the loss of the jewel. He appeared to think that I had been acting under the direction of somebody else. Who that person might be, I couldn't guess then, and can't guess now. In this uncertainty, one thing was plain, that Sergeant Cuff was miles away from knowing the whole truth. He was safe as long as the nightgown was safe, and not a moment longer. I quite despair of making you understand the distress and terror which pressed upon me now, It was impossible for me to risk wearing your nightgown any longer i might find myself taken off at a moment's notice to the police court at frizzing hall to be charged on suspicion and searched accordingly while sergeant cuff still left me free i had to choose and that at once between destroying the nightgown or hiding it in some safe place at some safe distance from the house if i had only been a little less fond of you i think i should have destroyed it but oh how could i destroy the only thing i had which proved that i had saved you from discovery if we did come to an explanation together and if you suspected me of having some bad motive and denied it all how could i win upon you to trust me unless i had the nightgown to produce was it wronging you to believe as i did and do still that you might hesitate to let a poor girl like me be the sharer of your secret and your accomplice in the theft which your money troubles had tempted you to commit think of your cold behaviour to me sir and you will hardly wonder at my own my unwillingness to destroy the only claim on your confidence and your gratitude which it was my fortune to possess i determined to hide it and the place I fixed on was the place I knew best, the shivering sand. As soon as the questioning was over, I made the first excuse that came into my head, and got leave to go out for a breath of fresh air. I went straight to Cobb's Hole, to Mrs. Yoland's cottage. His wife and daughter were the best friends I had. Don't suppose I trusted them with your secret. I have trusted nobody— all i wanted was to write this letter to you and to have a safe opportunity of taking the nightgown off me suspected as i was i could do neither of those things with any sort of security up at the house and now i have nearly got through my long letter writing it alone in lucy Oland's bedroom when it is done i shall go downstairs with a nightgown rolled up and hidden under my cloak I shall find the means I want for keeping it safe and dry in its hiding-place, among the litter of old things in Mrs. Yoland's kitchen, and then I shall go to the shivering sand. Don't be afraid of my letting my footmarks betray me, and hide the nightgown down in the sand, where no living creature can find it without being first let into the secret by myself. And when that is done, what then? Then, Mr. Franklin— "'I shall have two reasons for making another attempt to say the words to you which I have not said yet. "'If you leave the house, as Penelope believes you will leave it, "'and if I haven't spoken to you before that, I shall lose my opportunity for ever. "'That is one reason. "'Then again there is the comforting knowledge, if my speaking does make you angry, "'that I have got the nightgown ready to plead my cause for me as nothing else can. "'That is my other reason.' If these two together don't harden my heart against the coldness which has hitherto fro- frozen it up—I mean the coldness of your treatment of me—there will be at the end of my efforts and the end of my life. Yes, if I miss my next opportunity, if you are as cruel as ever, and if I feel it again as I have felt it already, good-bye to the world which has grudged me the happiness that it gives to others, good-bye to life— "'which nothing but a little kindness from you "'can ever make it pleasurable to me again. "'Don't blame yourself, sir, if it ends this way, "'but try, do try, to feel some forgiving sorrow for me. "'I shall take care that you find out what I have done for you "'when I am past telling you of it myself. "'Will you say something kind of me, then, "'in the same gentle way that you have "'when you speak to Miss Rachel? "'If you do that,' And if there are such things as ghosts, I believe my ghost will hear it and tremble with the pleasure of it. It's time I left off. I am making myself cry. How am I to see my way to the hiding-place if I let these useless tears come and blind me? Besides, why should I look at the gloomy side? Why not believe while I can that it will end well after all? I may find you in a good humour to-night." Or, if not, I may succeed better to morrow morning. I shan't improve my poor plain face by fretting, shall I? Who knows but I may have filled all these weary long pages of paper for nothing. They will go for safety's sake-never mind now, for what other reason-into the hiding place, along with the nightgown. It has been hard, hard work writing my letter. Oh! we only end in understanding each other, how I shall enjoy tearing it up. I beg to remain, sir, your true lover and humble servant, Rosanna Spearman. The reading of the letter was completed by Bettridge in silence. After carefully putting it back in the envelope, he sat thinking, with his head bowed down and his eyes on the ground. Betridge, I said, is there any hint to guide us at the end of the letter? He looked up slowly, with a heavy sigh. There is nothing to guide you, Mr. Franklin, he answered. If you will take my advice, you will keep the letter in the cover, till these present anxieties of yours have come to an end. It will sorely distress you whenever you read it. Don't read it now. I put the letter away in my pocket-book. A glance back at the sixteenth and seventeenth chapters of Bettridge's narrative will show that there really was a reason for my thus sparing myself at a time when my fortitude had been already cruelly tried. Twice over the unhappy woman had made her last attempt to speak to me, and twice over it had been my misfortune, God knows how innocently, to repel the advances she had made to me, on the Friday night, as Betridge truly describes it, she had found me alone at the billiard-table. Her manner and her language had suggested to me, and would have suggested to any man under the circumstances, that she was about to confess a guilty knowledge of the disappearance of the diamond. For her own sake, I had purposely shown no special interest in what was coming. For her own sake, I had purposely looked at the billiard-balls, instead of looking at her— and what had been the result i had sent her away from me wounded to the heart on the saturday again on the day when she must have foreseen after what penelope had told her that my departure was close at hand the same fatality still pursued us she had once more attempted to meet me in the shrubbery walk and she had found me there in company with bettridge and sergeant cuff in her hearing the sergeant with his own underhand object in view had appealed to my interest in Rosanna Spearman. Again, for the poor creature's own sake, I had met the police officer with a flat denial, and had declared, loudly declared, so that she might hear me, too, that I felt no interest whatever in Rosanna Spearman. At those words, solely designed to warn her against attempting to gain my private ear, she had turned away and left the place, cautioned of her danger, as I then believed, self-doomed to destruction, as I know now. From that point, I have already traced the succession of events which led me to the astounding discovery at the quicksand. The retrospect is now complete. I may leave the miserable story of Rosanna Spearman, to which, even at this distance of time, I cannot even revert without a pang of distress. To suggest for itself all that is here purposely left unsaid, I may pass from the suicide at the shivering sand, with its strange and terrible influence on my present position and my future prospects, to interests which concern the living people of this narrative, and to events which were already paving my way for the slow and toilsome journey from the darkness to the light. End of section 36